When I was in the Marines, one of the virtues that was drilled into us was mission accomplishment with no excuses. No excuses. You do what you're told. You don't come back and explain why it is that you failed to accomplish. Just get the job done. Once an order was given, it was the responsibility of the devoted Marine to solve whatever problems might be in the way in order to carry it out, to fulfill the plan, to accomplish the mission, and to do so without delay. That was the plan. And one of the most fundamental, one of the first ways that we were taught to honor this virtue is uh, shortly after arriving to boot camp, we were, we were segregated out into groups of about 80 guys per platoon, and we were assigned to a bunk room, a squad bay, that was essentially uh, approximately the size of this room right here. 80 guys uh, per, per room. There were uh, 40 sets of bunk beds up and down the entire length of the, of the, of, of the squad bay. The drill instructor would wake us up very kindly and gently in the morning and let us know it was time, please, dear, if you'd be ready to get up, and we would all prepare for the day. And one of the very first things we do after being so rudely awakened is that we were told to sweep the deck, the floor, sweep the floor. And so we'd all be lined up on one end, all 80 guys on one side, and we'd have to sweep. One problem, we were never given brooms. And so I'll never forget the first time that we were told, everybody, sweep! What does it mean? Sweep. Uh, sir, there's no brooms. I said sweep! From that very first moment, every single day for the next three months of boot camp, we knew when he said sweep what that meant, get down on our hands and knees and sweep. And literally, all 80 would go from one end of the squad bay all the way to the other, past all 40 bunks, sweeping with our hands the dust off the floor into a pile in the middle. It would finally get swept up and put in the wastebasket. And it was one of those silly little but fundamental things that taught us you don't have the excuse that there's no broom. We don't have the right tools. Well, if only we sent somebody to Walmart to get a couple of brooms, this would be, no, sweep! And so we did it. We learned that early on. To fail a mission was unacceptable. So we were taught to solve problems on our own. Get scrappy, get creative. You might have heard in military movies, something with a commander being approached and says something to the effect of, don't tell me your problems, tell me your solutions. Now, this, this is a really great virtue, and it served us well. In fact, it made us a very effective fighting force. I remember when they were trying to determine who might be amongst a, a small group of Marines, one that could rise to the top, be promoted, and become a leader, uh, they would give him a near-impossible task. Jones! Get to the other side of that hill. Fill 100 sandbags now. And so he'd have to take his small unit, go to the other side of the hill. No sandbags were given to him. No water was given to him. No shovels were given to him. Just do it. And he may not come back and say, sir, there's there's just no sandbags. Uh, uh, Where can I get a shovel? What? No, solve the problem on your own. So get creative. Get three guys, send them to the platoon over there, sneak in the window in the back, steal 100 of their pillowcases. Get back on over here as fast as you can. You three go find water. We're going to need that for the next several hours. You get on the ground right now, start busting with your boots up the ground and sweeping them into piles so we can try to start making 100 sandbags. They'd solve the problem. Young guys, we love that stuff. And it prepared us well for battle because as in war... Men are often left under-equipped, under-prepared, in dire situations. You don't say, time out to the enemy. I don't have enough bullets. You solve the problem. This way of thinking that was trained into me in that time actually served me really well as a young adult and even in my days right now. My kids haven't quite figured all of it out yet. I'm working on it. But I will say that I do think that that way of thinking has invaded the way that I pray. Or shall I say the way that sometimes I don't pray? Here's the chief reason that I often don't pray at times that I should. And I've I've been able to be introspective enough to figure this out about me, Rich. Why is it that sometimes I don't go to the Lord in prayer to ask for something? And the answer comes to my mind pretty quickly. I don't want to bug him with this. I believe he's big enough and powerful enough to move mountains, to to change the universe, to create things with the the word of his mouth, to bring all things to come to pass according to the purpose of his will. He can do all of that. Why would I ask him to help me with this little tiny problem? It's my job to do that. I'll bring the big ones to him. But the little ones, I got this, Lord. I'll, I'll manage this. I'll deal with this. It's invaded my thinking. Whether or not you've had that kind of experience and that virtue training in the Marines to learn 
independence and creativity and solving problems, a little bit of that tends to invade many of our thinking, I think. But we are not designed to operate this way as believers. We ought not bug our commander with simple little petty issues. Deal with it on your own. I'm too busy, too important. I need just the big, giant, urgent issues. We're not to relate to God as merely another human commander that should not be interrupted with our problems. And especially in the arena of spiritual warfare, prayer, going to God for help, is utterly crucial. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 10 today. I'm going to endeavor just to pound through the entire chapter. I think we can do that pretty quickly because of the flow of it. But this chapter introduces a vision and an interpretation of a vision that will be three chapters long. So we're really only going to get a third of the way into this event in Daniel. But the main two topics that we're going to be introduced to today are the topics of prayer and spiritual warfare. Prayer and the angelic or spiritual realm and the warfare that takes place in that realm. So we're going to read through Daniel chapter 10 today. But first, for the sake of time, I just want to pray and ask the Lord to be with us, to open our eyes, help us to understand, and uh, we're going to dive in and walk through uh, a verse or two at a time. Let's pray. Lord, we open your word right now, and we need your help to understand it. Uh, We can use and employ and should our logic, our reason, our minds. Uh, We should try to draw on other truths that we know from your word. Uh, But God, we really need your help to know what's going on here, to apply these things to our lives. And Father, we don't just want to know more facts about you. We want to relate to you better. We want to love you more. We want to lean into your word more because of this passage. And so help that happen. And that's a miracle we ask for, God. We know that. So please do this supernatural thing. And we ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Let's go to Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, if you will. And uh, you can follow along with me. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding, and had understanding of the vision. So Daniel had a vision in the previous chapter that happened in the first year of King Cyrus. This is now in the third year of King Cyrus, so a couple of years has elapsed. He has another vision. And he's startled by it. He's troubled by it. While he understands the vision, he gets the pieces of it, he needs God's help. He wants to know what to do with this. He's in distress. So the next couple of verses tells us this. First person from Daniel now telling the story. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. And the brothers in tech with you guys can go ahead and stick these verses up so people can follow along. Uh, we're in verse two right now. In those days, uh, those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So as a result of this vision, which wasn't described yet, we just know that he had a vision, He was distressed enough, he cries out to God, and he does this by prayer and fasting. For three weeks, he eats no delicacies. So it doesn't sound like a full fast, like he starves himself. It sounds like the finer things in life that he's used to, living in the upper echelons of society in Persia, he abstains from. You might remember that back in the first chapter, Daniel and the the three other Hebrew partners that were with him declared they would not defile themselves with the king's table, and so they wouldn't eat any meat or wine. It was a specific time. They were being trained to be like the Babylonians and to honor their false gods. Evidently, after that limited period of time, he did have meat and wine. And so here, he abstains for a period of three weeks. Additionally, he does not anoint himself at all for those three weeks. Anointing, that's a pouring of a perfuming kind of oil on. It's, it's, it's referring to the typical orders of hygiene. This might be roughly equivalent to he didn't take a shower, shave, or put on deodorant for those three weeks. He was kind of despondent, just crying out to God, Lord, please answer. Verses 4 through 6 continue. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked. And behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold, from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his, voice, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words 
like the sound of a multitude. This event takes place on the 24th day of the first month. That would have been at the very tail end of the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread in the Jewish calendar. Daniel was away from the city of Babylon, the the nearest place that the Tigris River uh, came to the city of Babylon, which we know he had been in previously, is about 20 miles. So he's not where he had been stationed for quite a long time. He's now at least 20 miles away on the Tigris River, and he sees in a vision a heavenly being. Look at how he describes this being. He says, first of all, he looks like a man. I lifted my eyes up and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen. Now, later, as this man is again referred to, this angelic figure, heavenly being, is referred to, we'll see he's actually floating above the river between the two banks of the river. Maybe that's why he lifted his eyes up. He sees this floating angelic figure in the sky, and he describes with brilliance. You see the language he's using here? Precious stones, gold, lightning, flames, burnished bronze. All this kind of language that's used of this heavenly vision. It's extraordinary. Now, throughout the course of the next three chapters, in this vision and the interpretation, Daniel's going to see and interact with between three and four angels. It's kind of hard to break down which one's doing what at what time, but it's between three and four, so multiple angels. But this particular being is never clearly identified. We even see names given, but not of this particular being. And so, as you might suspect, Throughout history, Christians who read this passage have had a few different views on exactly who is to be seen in this particular part of the vision. So I'm just going to clear up what I think right off the bat based on the study that I've been doing in this. I I, uh, agree with many of uh, the scholars who've preceded uh, me in any of this. I think that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. I think this is a divine figure. I don't think this is just a random angel. I think this first being he sees is Jesus before he was ever even born onto the earth, comes into the world, lives a perfect life, dies for sins, and raised again. I think it's the second member of the Trinity. Here's why I think this. Because Daniel had seen angels before. Or more accurately, he'd seen one angel prior to this on two occasions, the angel Gabriel, and interacted with him. Had a familiarity with this Gabriel. And at that time, he was not at all, Gabriel was not at all described in this way. In fact, he didn't evoke fear from Daniel at all. Daniel, prior to this moment, never describes the appearance of an angel, ever. This is the first description of a particular angel, a heavenly being. If this angel was Gabriel, as some have suggested, it would be very odd for Daniel, A, to not recognize him, or B, now describe him in such distinctive terms that we never saw prior to this particular time. If it was just another angelic messenger, not Gabriel, just another one being sent to him here, it would, additionally, it would be odd for Daniel to describe him so distinctly from the way that he had interacted with Gabriel in the past. He had great fear, so much, in fact, he's going to pass out several times throughout the course of this vision and need strengthening supernaturally in order to deal with it. This also matches the description that the Apostle John uses in the book of Revelation when he sees Jesus. When John, at the last book of the Bible in Revelation, sees Jesus, a vision of Jesus, this is how he describes him. I'll read this accounting just a few verses long. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. For the record, Jesus is the only figure in the Bible that's ever said to wear a golden sash, ever. Except for this one, if it's not Jesus. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. See how those features just sound so similar to what is being described by Daniel. And if you know much about the book of Revelation, you'll know John drew upon the Daniel language a ton to describe what's going on in Revelation. Very familiar with Daniel and uses very similar language to describe what I think is the same figure, Jesus Christ. So it would seem this figure is Jesus who introduces the message given by Gabriel. In other words, Jesus is the first figure he sees in a moment he's going to pass uh, the, the instruction to Gabriel, which is just what happened back in Daniel chapter 8. In Daniel chapter 8, it says this, And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai. It's a river. So there was a voice coming from between the banks of the river. And it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. You seeing it? 
So there's a figure. He doesn't describe the figure there, but there's a voice coming from between the banks of a river instructing Gabriel, hey, tell Daniel the vision. I think that's what's going on here. It's a figure between the banks of a river instructing Gabriel, Gabriel, tell Daniel what's going on. I think that's what's happening. Whomever it is, Daniel's overwhelmed. He continues on. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So Daniel had an entourage with him, but they weren't sticking around for the vision because when when it began, they run off because they're afraid of what's going on. And this actually sounds a lot to me like what happens in Acts chapter 9 when Paul, Saul at the time, first sees the vision of, I think, the same character, the same figure, Jesus. Those around him did not get to experience the vision, even though he wasn't alone, because it was only given for the one, Daniel in the Old Testament, Saul in the New Testament. He says, he hears the sounds of his words, but Daniel, you'll notice, doesn't tell us what those words were. See that? I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So we don't know what that sound was. Hello, Daniel, listen up. This vision's free. We don't know, we don't know what he says. We just know he heard words, passes out, and this is what happens next. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. At the beginning of that couple verses I just read, it says, A hand touched me. It doesn't say his hand touched me. Might seem little, but this would be an odd way of speaking if the hand described belonged to the man he'd already, descri- already talked about. I think this is a new angel. I think that the, the pre-incarnate Christ is still floating above the waters uh, over the bank of the Tigris River between there. He's presiding over all that's going on. Now Gabriel's the one who gets down. No lightning from his face, no burnished bronze in his arms, no, no brilliance, and, and the sound of his voice so great that can't be uttered. He reaches and touches Daniel. I think that's, I think that's probably what I would assume is Gabriel. He's not explicitly named here, so it could be wrong, but I'd suggest that it is him. He's the one who delivers all of the interpretations of the visions of Daniel's in the past, Daniel in the past, and he even identifies Daniel with the same words, one greatly loved. I think that's what's happening. And he says, from the first day, the first day, Daniel, that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, Your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. I want to talk about prayer. I want to talk about prayer for a minute here. We can see some important things about prayer. Daniel's prayer prompted God to act. Well, I was going to come anyway. Your prayer just happened to be. I have come. I, angel, was sent, and I have come because of your words, because you prayed, because you cried out to God. And so I was sent. And when? Immediately. This angel was sent immediately. I came. I, I, I was dispatched immediately to come to you. You know when you have a busy day, you get back to work after a long weekend, or you've been on a trip, or just for whatever reason, the pile has grown. And you know you got the list of things to go through. You do the urgent things, the important things. For, you kind of line it up. Or maybe it's your, your, you look through your emails and you, you quickly go through the, the most important ones and then you, you just make your way through. And you finally get to the last ones when you get to the end of the day and you're finishing up that day. That's not how it works with God. It's not as though our prayer to God is a service call that will be answered in the order it was received. 
God does not get overwhelmed by work. God does not have to, I'll get to you in a minute, I've got so, I've got so much going on, I'm so important, which he is. I have lots of checkboxes here. When I, when I get to those, I'll, I'll, I'll turn my attention to you. God doesn't get busy. There's no angel rushing into the throne room. Hey, God, this is an urgent one. Can you please return that call? No. Immediately, our literally omnipotent, all-powerful God, omniscient God, knows all things, knows exactly what the problem is, knows what's needed. And Daniel's prayer prompts God to act. Prayer Prayer moves God. Prayer moves God. Jesus was uh, once teaching on prayer. He taught on prayer a handful of different times in his ministry. He was teaching on prayer to his disciples. And he was correcting a couple of wrong thinkings. He first brings up the, the Jews. The Jews sometimes, when they're they're praying, they make these long pretenses, and they don't want to pray alone. They want to make sure everyone else around them knows how pious and wonderful they are. So, so these Jewish hypocrites, uh, they go out into the streets, they find a street corner and make sure, is anyone watching? Oh, they're watching now. And then they started praying these big, long prayers, and Jesus rebukes them for that. Go into the closet by yourself in secret, where your Father in heaven will see you and deal with you in secret. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't just try to get the acclaim of others. Actually appeal to God. It's not a show. It's not a badge of honor. It's you relating to and speaking to your Father in heaven who sees in secret. And then he turns his attention to yet another error, the error of the Gentiles, those who have false gods, those who loved eloquent language. If you didn't know this about the Greeks and then the Romans, they loved oratory skills. They gave great, uh, a gr- great acclaim and pats on the back to those who use their words effectively and very well. They love writing and vocabulary and speeches and argumentation and debate. And so these guys would be those who'd pray to their false gods and they'd convince their false gods as to why they needed to help because of all of their oratory skills at their disposal. And Jesus says, don't be like that either. I want to read for you real quick what he said in Matthew 6 about prayer. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. I think that's what we're just saying. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. And he introduces what we remember as the Lord's Prayer. Now, why would Jesus say, they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. I think what's going on there is the idea that the Gentiles had to convince or explain so that the great counselor gods would understand the need and be able to fulfill it. You and I don't need to do that because Jesus' answer is don't be like them. Why? Because you're different? Well, because your real God is different for your father knows what you need before you ask. In other words, when you and I go to the Lord in prayer, we don't go, God, this is really hard to explain. I don't understand how to ask this, but I need help with this difficult circumstance, and he goes, I'm sorry, you got to keep going. Explain more. what What are you asking? You see, God knows what we need before we even cry out to him. And this is that great counterintuitive switch that flips. It pushes so against our typical sensibilities because it doesn't make sense. If God already knows what I need, why doesn't he just take care of that? Why do I need to waste time calling him up? But Jesus tells us to do just that. Your father knows what you need before you ask. So ask. Awesome. You ever been in a situation where you prayed for God to show up, to move, to give counsel on something, to provide, and it just feels like God has not responded. You just, I've prayed and you're not doing anything. While prayer moves God, it doesn't necessarily move him where we want it to move him. Lord, I'm trying to steal all the money. Please, please make it work. Well, he doesn't want that for us, so he's probably not going to help you steal the money. Some of those feel black and white, seem a little more obvious. But what if it's something that feels like it's a good thing to pray for? God, I I want you to heal my child. I hate seeing my sick kid. Please, please, please heal my child. You would want that, wouldn't you, God? Isn't that a good thing to ask? Don't you want me to ask that, please? A sincere request, not... Not selfish, not good for me. Please, for this kid. Why will God not answer? Why does God not move yet? 
related to this question, some might ask, how does this work if God is sovereign? If God is working in history, all things according to his plan, if he has decreed how things will work out, if nothing can sway his hand, if he's working it according to the purpose of his will, how does prayer do anything? The answer is that's how God sovereignly ordained for things to work, that we would pray and he would respond. That's how. I want to show you an example of this in the Old Testament. Someone might ask the question in this way. Does God answer our prayers because they're a part of his already laid plan or because we prayed? Like in other words, does God go, well, yeah, that's, I was already doing that, so you don't need to ask. Or does God go, well, this was the plan. Oh, you asked for this? Okay, I'll adjust the plan. You get the, get the question? Which is it that God does? I was reminded this week of Isaiah chapter 37. This is when uh, King Hezekiah of the southern kingdom of Judah is crying out to God for help because Sennacherib, who uh, his kingdom of Assyria just laid waste the entire northern nation of Israel, just decimated it. And now he's coming against Jerusalem with his armies, and there's no way, no way naturally that Jerusalem can stand against Hezekiah or can stand against Sennacherib. And so Hezekiah prays to God, God, deliver us. You're our only hope. There's there's no allies left. We can't get out of this any other way. You're going to have to show up. And he cries out to God. And so God sends Isaiah to Hezekiah in answer to the prayer. Isaiah was a prophet. Listen to what is said in Isaiah 37 as he responds to the king. Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken concerning him. And then he details that God will show up and defend. Because you have prayed. So why did God show up to rescue Jerusalem, Hezekiah, and the people? Because the king got on his knees and cried out to God. But... If you go down just another seven verses later, same chapter, God says this through Isaiah. Because you, Sennacherib, wicked king of Assyria, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put a hook in your nose, my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Wait, so... Why did God intervene? Because Sennacherib, the wicked king, dared to mock God. But it continues. Same chapter, just another six verses later in verse 35. God gives a final answer to why he's going to answer. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. This is literally in a single response. One email. This is, this, is, this is one discourse in answer to Hezekiah. Why did God rescue Jerusalem? Was it because Hezekiah prayed? Yes. Was it because Sennacherib deserved judgment? Yes. Was it because the Lord would vindicate his own name by rescuing the city? Yes. Do you see? All of it works together. Does God answer our prayers because they are part of his plan or because we pray? Yes. That was the plan for you to pray and for him to respond. And that's a miracle. Our prayers are not merely commiserating with God. God, I just want you to know how hard it is. I mean, you already have a plan. You're going to do your thing. So just know it's not great right now. But I'll just trust whatever your plan was. No, it's actually asking God, listen. I'm asking you to move, heal this child, provide this building, help me provide for my family, heal this relationship. We ask God to do things. We ask God to move. That's how we are to pray. What are you praying for right now? If you were to sincerely answer the question, not the fake prayer request answer, not the fake one. You guys know what I'm talking about, the fake one. If you're in a small group or a Bible study and someone says, how can we pray for you? Oh, um, and you quickly have the one you remember. Oh, my neighbor's dog is sick. That was safe. 
didn't have to get too vulnerable on that one. But now they know my neighbor has a dog. So you know the safe one you kind of bring out sometimes? No, if you, if you were to answer sincerely for yourself, what is the real biggest prayer request? Like you know in your heart, if God was like, what do you need now? To ask you so you'd identify, what would it be? Our perfect God may be working multiple answers to prayer at the same time with multiple purposes that all work together for his glory and our good. You ask, you ask, why might God not heal that child yet? Maybe the Lord has in mind to answer multiple prayers to deal with multiple purposes at the same time. What if the Lord wants for the new believer who has not yet become a Christian who will become one and then begin to pray with you For that to happen so that that new believer now gets to experience God answering the prayer by healing the kid a year after when you asked. Did you see those kinds of scenarios? We don't know. We don't know in every moment. Why? I don't know. We can surmise. We can try to suspect. We can try to figure it out. I I don't know. I don't know why God's not answering that one right now. But he's working things according to the purpose of his will. And he will work them for your good. And it's how we are to trust. Daniel prayed. He cried out to God. Three weeks later, he gets a reply. So why the delay? Why for, why for Daniel? I don't think it's the same for all of us. But why for Daniel was there a delay? Hey, dispatch day one. Why the delay? And what follows here in these next few verses is one of the most peculiar and unique passages in the entirety of the Bible. Look at these next couple of verses with me. The angel explains why he was delayed. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. Now, this is where I spent the overwhelming majority of my study time in these last few weeks to prepare for Daniel chapter 10. I was pounding through commentaries and scholarly works in the different languages, and I probably looked at 25 different English translations of the Bible on these two verses to try to get to the bottom of what exactly is going on. And here's what's interesting. The language here is not very hard. I've said this in past times, uh, past passages. Sometimes the language is hard. Ooh, those words are difficult words. The Hebrew words are hard. So it's really hard to even know if you have the words right, let alone the interpretation. That's actually not the problem here. The words are actually really clear. And yet we ask, what is going on? Why was the angel late? Why was he delayed? He was engaged in battle for 21 days. That's why. His travel to Daniel was interrupted. And who was the one who interrupted his travel? Who was the one whom he was battling? The prince of the kingdom of Persia. If you've been with us for any length of time, you might remember back in Daniel chapter 7. We spent several weeks to walk through all that together because it was a really big, weighty passage. Lots going on, lots of debate, difficult language things and all that. Back in chapter 7... Daniel has a vision of four beasts coming out of the sea. You can go back there and take a look at that, listen to past sermons for more details. But I said then that those four beasts represent the demonic powers behind earthly rule. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. They are the spiritual forces of darkness that are at work behind earthly kings. Those beasts weren't kings. They weren't human. They were demons. They were spiritual forces. They were angels, bad angels, but angels. They were angelic class creatures that exist in the heavenly realm, influencing the things of the world, the geopolitical forces, those dominant world powers at that time. This is why the demonic force here is referred to as the prince of the kingdom of Persia, Because he is a demon who is exercising his influence over the earthly events in that dominant superpower of the day, Persia. That's who he is. So in other words, the spiritual figure here is the same as the second creature, the second beast that came out of the sea, the one that looked like a ferocious bear with the three ribs in its mouth. It's the same same character. That's the same figure being referred to. Now we're actually getting a little bit more detail about that figure 
I don't know how these battles look. I don't know. I've kind of pictured them as like, you know, floating angels above a city and they're fighting with like swords and stuff like that and people are just going about their daily lives underneath. I don't know what this looks like. It doesn't say exactly how he withstood or resisted or opposed. That's the language that's going on there. Nevertheless, it took Gabriel, I think that's Gabriel, that angel, time and more time than he had thought because he was caught up in this kind of battle. Here's what's important to realize about this, though. Spiritual battles aren't merely combat theater playing out in another realm, realm inconsequently. It's just like you can look at it and say, wow, it's like watching Lord of the Rings, popcorn. If we could just see the spiritual realm, it would just be a blast. We just watch what's going on. No, spiritual realities, spiritual realities to include spiritual war and battle in the heavenly realm impact our material world, events in history, things that happen in our day, even now, and certainly, of course, back in Daniel's day, they have real consequences for our world. I want to point you and reminder to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 1 and 2. I'll read this out loud. You may be familiar with this passage. And you were Christians. You Christians, you used to be this way. Let me tell you, you used to be. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. There was spiritual power at work in your life at that time. You once followed the prince of the power of the air. I think that's Satan. I think that's the devil as who's in mind in Ephesians chapter 2. And he's identified further there as the spirit that is now, presently, here today, at work in non-believers. Not this distant force. It's not just this kind of ambiguous uh, kind of movement of spirits in the ether. No People right now are being influenced by this spirit that is currently at work. And brothers and sisters, how is it that these demons, these spirits, interact with our world today? Chiefly by influence, temptation, enticing, deception. We see in Jesus' day, they could like, possess a person, make him supernaturally strong like the Gerizine demoniac, the ability to prophesy like the young girl that had been impacted by that, uh, to, to make a boy convulse and throw himself on fire and water, physically do those kinds of things. Demons can do that. But chiefly, chiefly by influence, enticing people, like the serpent in the garden. Did the serpent in the garden of Eden grab Eve, pin her to the ground, and try to force the fruit down her throat. No, he lied to her. Hey, you want this. You too can be God. This prince, this prince of the kingdom of Persia, he's in a battle with this Gabriel, this angel, this messenger angel, trying to prevent him from delivering the message to Daniel. He doesn't want that to happen on his watch, on his territory. He's called the prince of the kingdom of Persia for a reason. He's not just an observer, like a Trekkie or a Star Wars nerd who's given that title because I like to watch and just observe stuff. I have no impact on it. No, he's literally a part of history there. Titles and names like this help us see that the principal way these prince category Demons influence world events is through statecraft. Through statecraft. By affecting world leaders' decisions, enticing them to do what is wrong. Yes, and their sin certainly is what is being drawn upon. It's their own wicked desires that are being tempted. Let me give you a couple of Bible examples of this. Because we know that spiritual world can impact with the material world, our, our world right now in very physical, literal ways. Anytime a miracle is talked about in the Bible, right? It's where literally the spiritual world is touching the material world. The, the Red Sea parts, that's not normal, okay? It's not ordinary. It's extraordinary. It's not natural. It's supernatural. Why? Because God did something that is uncommon, atypical in that moment. And yes, he can do that. Yes, he can move in history and in time 
in very unique ways like that. But it does seem like chiefly it's through the influence of angels and demons in history. Here's a couple of examples. When God provokes Satan to go after Job, God provokes Satan to go after Job. Have you considered my servant Job? He worships and praises me all the day. Satan says, yeah, it's just because he has a lot of blessing. You take that away, it's not going to go so good for you, this praise you're getting from Job. So God says, really? Go for it. And he gives Job into Satan's hands. That's how the language says it here. And do you remember what Satan does in this interaction? He brings a strong wind to knock down his his home, kill all of his kids. He he brings fire from heaven to rain down and destroy some of his, uh, his cattle. And then he, he, so a supernatural and natural weather events, the devil has some control over in that moment. God authorized him to do that. But the other three accounts is that that Satan, the character, goes to other humans and entices them to attack Job. Three different groups come to attack Job, to tear down his family, to tear down his property, to kill the shepherds, to kill his servants. How? Because somehow... Satan can entice and tempt and get people to do what he wants them to do. And for the record, he got them to do it in a moment. It all happened on the same day, same time. He coordinated it perfectly. Somehow, this kind of influence was possible by that spiritual being. Another example for you, and this one comes from God. I'll tell you a story about Ahab, wicked king in the northern kingdom of Israel. He's getting ready to go against a battle with king of Assyria. And God's going to destroy Ahab in this because Ahab's a wicked king. He's the one who married Jezebel. And God's going to bring wrath upon the people of Israel. He's going to bring it upon Ahab. Ahab's not going to survive the battle. But all of his counselors are saying, hey, let's, let's cry out to our gods to make sure that we can prophesy positively. You're going to win the battle. This is what they would do. This is how they'd get advice before they go into battle. And so he gets his false prophets of Baal, Asherah. He appeals to the many prophets and asks them, Will I have victory? And they all say, yes. Yes, our God has told us you will have victory. Well, one of Ahab's uh, uh, allies is Jehoshaphat. He's the king of Judah in the south. He's still a Yahweh worshiper. He worships the one true God, not these false gods. And he goes, hey, uh, before we go forward, maybe we should just see how Yahweh weighs in on this. Let's just see what God says. Not your other gods. Let's, let's, get, let's get the God of Israel to, to weigh in on whether we should go. And so Ahab says, go get, a, go get a prophet of God, a prophet of Yahweh, the one true God. Go, go get him. Micaiah was his name. And he's like, I know him, this Micaiah guy. He's the only prophet of God that I know, and he always gives me bad news. I hate this guy. Messenger goes, gets Micaiah, brings him back. Crazy turn of events. You can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 22. It's crazy, but listen to what happens. Micaiah comes to him, and he's like, hey, am I going to win the battle? What does God say? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's going to go great, yeah. Awesome. Go out. Fight, fight. You don't even need armor. It's going to be good. Ahab's like, I don't trust you. Why are you, why are you all positive all of a sudden? What's that smile on your face? You always say bad. What's going on? Tell me, tell me the truth, prophet of God. He goes, all right, you want the truth? You're going to die. And everyone who goes with you is going to die. And all those other prophets, they're false. They're telling you lies. They think it's true, but it's not true. I knew it. I knew you had bad news for me, Ahab says. I, I, I knew it. Well, then why are these guys all telling me that God said it's good, but you're telling me God said it's bad? And this is what Micaiah says to him. Listen carefully. And Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. I saw God and all the angels, the host, the angels of heaven standing around him. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I'll entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I'll go out and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And he, God, said, you're to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. 
How did God, God himself, influence the historical events that were taking place right then? How? Could he have just brought the king of Assyria against and just destroyed the Israelites? Yep, totally could have. Could he have made all the, all of the, the guys out in battle just drop their swords and run and Ahab dies? Of course he could have. Of course. Could he have brought hailstones to come down and crush him? Yeah, he did that plenty of times whenever he needed something to happen. But here, God moved in history by a spirit enticing, enticing Ahab, influencing Ahab through these false prophets. They thought they were telling the truth. They were not. Angelic and demonic forces impact our world in a number of ways, but the primary way that what they do affects us is by influence. In other words, when I send brothers and sisters out of here on a given Sunday, I don't go, watch out for the demons. They may strike your head. Cover up. Hey, watch out for the demons. Make sure you have plenty of ammo. It's on sale at Shields. No. Because that's not the way the enemy is going to attack us with weapons of this world. It'll be different than that. And the Bible warns us of this. The prince of Persia was the angelic being who whispered into the ears of the kings of Persia. Kings of Persia probably just means the uh, uh, rulers of Persia. So it's probably talking about just the whole conglomerate, the, the governing forces that are there, more than just the chief king Cyrus at the day, probably his governors and his officials as well. That's, that's probably what's in mind. That prince was the one who influenced them, guiding the events of history. And when God sends Gabriel to answer Daniel's prayer, this prince withstood him. He opposed him, resisted him for 21 days in order to prevent him from delivering the message to Daniel. And he almost succeeded. Evidently, this demon was successful enough that Gabriel needed reinforcements. From whom? From Michael, one of the chief princes. Michael is the second of only two angels in the entirety of the Bible that are named Gabriel and Michael, only two. And they're both, they both show up in the book of Daniel and the, book of Re- uh, and the New Testament. They show up in the book of Daniel and the Old Testament and the New Testament in a number of places. Uh, in the beginning of the Gospels, when Gabriel's telling uh, the people of the coming Christ, and Michael's referred to in the book of Jude and in Revelation. Michael's referred to in the New Testament as an archangel. His name means one who is like unto our God. And it sounds as though this Michael is given a specific charge in his high class, his high, high category of angelic being, to have charge over, watch over the church of God in the Old Testament. In fact, in chapter 12, it'll say this about Michael. At the time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Not a lot there, but it sounds like he has a specific charge He's delegated to operate within the jurisdiction of caring for the people of God. In Revelation chapter 12, it says that Michael leads the battle against uh, the great uh, dragon in heaven, Satan, the deceiver himself. He brings his angels. He's leading the army. Uh, The devil comes against him with his false angels. They fight. Michael wins, casts the dragon down to earth. And again, we hear that a heavenly battle, something that took place in a spiritual realm that you and I could never see with our natural eyes, impacted earth. The dragon came to earth, pursued the people of God. Persecution happened on earth because of the consequence of a spiritual battle. And why did he come to make Daniel understand what would happen to his people? In days yet to come, So the vision was for this purpose. You need to know what's going to happen in your future, Daniel. That's why it was so important for him to come. The text continues, 15 through 17. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, Oh, my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. So again, his interaction with these angelic figures is overwhelming for him. Maybe he's tired and uh, and hungry and kind of weakened in his state and hearing about this vision and the introduction of it is just too much for him to bear. Continues, again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. 
And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Daniel here now is finally ready to hear the details, the interpretation of the vision that comes in the next two chapters. But this chapter concludes with the next two verses. This is kind of the the summary of uh, what has been going down in the spiritual realm. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So he tells him the fight's not over. I I left the fight in Michael's hands. Uh, When I'm done with you, I'm going back to battle there. And I'm going to stay in battle because after the Persian is gone, the Greeks will come. And the battle will continue to rage on. In the heavenlies. You know, I think when I was a kid, I used to think that being an angel is boring. What a boring life. Sit on the harp. Sit on the cloud with a harp, right? With the, with the white robe and stuff. You might get assigned to the task of being the one that, poof, sits up on a person's shoulder and tells them to do good things. And the other the demon says bad things. It was so boring. And any image or picture or far side cartoon of heaven was just like, ugh. Why would anybody want to go there? Why would anybody want to do that? Guys, lots to be said about that, but there is nothing boring about the life of an angel. I mean, I mean, literally, we have Old Testament accounts of, 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 of when the eyes of, of people are open to see the spiritual realm. They see battlefields full of armor-clad warriors prepared for and fighting in battle. That's what's actually going on in the spiritual realm. They're not just, when's history over? Another day? It's not the angelic realm. You don't read those accounts in the heavens and they're bored. They're celebrating. They're singing praises to the risen Christ. They're doing his bidding. They're ministering on our behalf. It's awesome. Next week, we'll begin reading through the details of the vision. But here's how I want to conclude today. You need to know spiritual warfare is real. The spiritual realm is real. We don't have to play the game that the devil's under every rock in every circumstance. You, you, go, you, you go ahead and, and, and uh, hit your shin on the coffee table. Ah, the devil's trying to get me again. You don't have to do that. Maybe you just are clumsy. Okay, But spiritual warfare is real. There really are things happening in the world today, and they will happen long after we're gone. We're warned of this in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's sometimes you might get sick and you're physically weakened, okay? That's physical. Eat healthy, get some good rest, you'll probably restore to decent health. There are other times where you might just get no sleep for a couple of weeks because your, your mind is racing with all the decisions you have to make. That's a mental battle that might not necessarily be a spiritual thing. And yet there are other times that you are going to experience in your life spiritual warfare, spiritual battle, where there's no other way to cut it. You go, this is not a physical thing. This is not just a mental thing. There's something going on right now. I'm trying to diagnose it. I'm sniffing something out. This is beyond the usual I shared with some people the last couple of months, my family's felt under total spiritual attack, and I am so slow to ring that bell. If you don't know me very well about that, I am so slow to do that. I'm always like, no, it's not, demons don't care what I'm doing. It's more about, I'm a sinner. I'm tempted to do wrong things. I make a foolish decision here. Uh, It's just the, the, the environment we're in. I'm really slow to ring that bell. But trusted Christians who knew all the blow-by-blow blow details, all the things that have gone down in our, in, in our household and our, with the physical things and sicknesses and, and things outside with our business that we have at home and with extended family and all of our circle, those who knew the play-by-play almost unanimously said, you know, I don't know how to call this anything else. I think, I think this is a spiritual attack. I think that they were right. And during that, during that time... I remember talking with Laura a lot about this, and just like, I just, yeah, this other person I was talking to, they said, Rich, do you think that maybe this is a spiritual attack? Spiritual attack coming against you? It's not just physical. It's clearly more than just physical. It's not just mental. There's something else at play. 
And I was talking about that with her, and Laura asked the really probing question. She's like, Rich, maybe, but why does it matter? She said, why would it matter to diagnose this as a spiritual attack? Like, what does that help? What would, what would that change? And I thought about that for a few days. And she and I chatted about it more and more and more. And you know what I think the answer is to that? Why, why would it matter for you? Why would I want right now, right now, for you to acknowledge that you, if you are a believer, are going to go through spiritual attacks, actual spiritual kind of uh, influence in your life? Why? So that you know how to fight it. Okay? If it's, if it's just a cold, take a nap and hydrate. Okay? That's what you should do. If it's just your mind, maybe you need some good rest. Maybe you need to talk to somebody about some things and try to you know, meet with another trusted brother or sister in Christ and walk through and try to figure out why you're, why, why you're having issues in your head. But sometimes, sometimes, it might just be spiritual. May, get, hey, crazy. Maybe the Bible's true. And maybe we should stand against the schemes of the devil because they're real. Right? Right? You need to be reminded of the spiritual realities that are around us. You need to be reminded that you are powerless, powerless to affect this, to help this without God. I'm very well aware that when I preach something like this, it might provoke or prompt some people to be faster, to go, ah, demon, demon, ah, that. Sure. But I do think we need to keep that in our minds. We've said this before, even through Daniel, we must reject pure materialism, okay? Secular humanism that says that there is nothing immaterial. There's no supernatural anything. There's no God. There's no demons, no angels, none of that. It's all just material. If anything's going on, it's the firing of synapses in our brain and the physical atoms clashing into each other down here in, 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 in all of the universe. That's all that it is. And sometimes Christians fall prey to that, and then we don't assign spiritual blame to certain effects that take place in our lives and the things around us. Guys, why do you think some of the crazy things are happening in the political realms these days? Maybe, maybe demons are influencing world leaders today to make some of the decisions they're doing. I actually feel confident that's the case many times. And you need to know that your prayers, your prayer is your weapon your prayer is your weapon. You're leaning into the word, the words of God and truth. This is the weapon. Go to the Lord, relate to him, converse with him. If you're not a believer today, you are in big trouble. I don't say it lightly. You are in huge trouble if you're not a believer today. The Lord never promises to answer a prayer of a non-believer ever in the Bible, ever. If you're not a believer today and you're just kind of trying to figure all this stuff out, you need to know you are a sinner. You have been separated from God because of your iniquities. Your wickedness and your sinfulness, like all of ours, have placed a chasm between you and him that he has not promised to hear your prayers across. But God, in his infinite goodness and kindness, sent his perfect son, Jesus, to live flawlessly, perfectly. He lived the life we should have lived. And then he died the death that we should have died. And he was put on the cross. He was mocked and spit upon and brutalized. And while that's going down on earth, in the heavenlies, imagine the battle. Imagine the cries of influence trying to scream into the ears of Jesus on the cross. Just sin. Just sin. Just get off. End it. End it. And the great warrior king did not relent. And he gave his life. And the giving of Jesus' life on the cross is so significant because he, he took the, the burden, the punishment due to us for our sin on himself. He said, you deserve punishment. I'll take it. And his father, the wrath of God, the father, poured out on the son on the cross so that we can be free from our sin. That all the punishment due to us will be paid on him on the cross. And you want to know how you get that trade? How does that work for you? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Repent of your sins. Turn in faith to him. And you will now have access to God in a way that you couldn't imagine, that you can cry out to him, you can pray to him. Why? Because in Christ, who's seated at the right hand of God, who didn't stay in the tomb, rose again, is now seated in heaven, and works on our behalf. 
before his Father. When you and I pray to God, we do so in Christ. That's why every time we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. Because not because, God, I was really good this week, so uh, I pray according to my good works that those will have gotten your, your attention and you'll answer the prayer. No, we pray this in Jesus' name. If you're not a believer today, repent of your sins, turn in faith to him. It's your only hope. And like us, broken sinners who have access to God in Christ, we'll teach you how to talk with him and pray with him and trust his word. We ache for you to have this. Let's pray as we close. Lord, we love you and are so grateful that these things are true. We are so grateful that you work in this world, in the spiritual realm, and it's not this big, bad uh, yin and yang, uh, good and bad, that it can't be defeated right now. Lord, you have a plan. You're working all things to the perfect end. And we have been promised that we, as little children, if we are from God, we have overcome the spirits of the world. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, your Bible says, Lord. I thank you that that is true. I pray that my brothers and sisters here would revel in this and celebrate and go to you in prayer and not lean into the folly that I know I do so often. I don't want to bug you, God. Let us not think like that. Let us not lay down our greatest weapons because we think we can handle it with our fists. Lord, help us instead to pick up what you told us to do, cry out to you, and watch you move. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.